Matthew 16, we'll start reading in verse 13 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Matthew 16, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds." Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, from your word, Lord, that if we wish to come after you, that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and that we have to follow you. Lord, in order to save our life, we must lose it in this life. And Lord, in order to gain it, we must be willing to go with you and to die. Lord, may we not have an aversion to the cross of Christ, uh, to the sufferings of the cross, but rather see that this is the pathway that you have ordained, Lord, not only for your son, but for all of your people, that we must first suffer with you and then enter into glory just as Christ did. So Lord, teach us tonight... <clears throat> Lord, to uh, do those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, to uh, not live for our own pleasures or according to the flesh, but rather we pray that our whole life would be yielded to you and that we would, Lord, with humility and submission, Lord, uh, seek to do and to know your will. So, Lord, help us tonight as we study your word, and we pray that you would, uh, Lord, open our eyes just as you did uh, to Peter, Lord, that flesh and blood did not reveal these truths to him, but the Father in heaven. So we pray as well, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes and that you would reveal wonderful things to us from your law. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're in this passage tonight where you have, uh, really, you see the uh, reality of the Christian life uh, before us in 
that uh, according to Romans chapter 7, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That there is a mixture in the Christian life of good and evil. That there are times where we do what is good and right in the sight of God. We see that in this confession of Peter. Right? He gives a, a wonderful confession of the person of Christ. And it's true and right and good. Right? So everything that he says is good. And Christ commends him for that. And then uh, points him to the fact that God is the one who has revealed this to him. That Peter is a true believer. And the Father is revealing these truths to him. But then immediately after that, he is rebuking Christ for speaking of his death, which elicits Jesus to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. So how is it that a man can, in one breath, give such a good confession of Christ, and then in the next breath, be called Satan by Jesus because he's not setting his interest on God's interest, but on man's? And that is because of the duality that exists in the children of God. That we have the Spirit, and we are striving to do the will of God. We want to know and please God. And there are times where we do those things that are good and pleasing in the sight of the Lord. But then because of the flesh, and the flesh that remains within us, and the sin that remains within us, it wells itself up. And there are times where we say things that we shouldn't say, or that we do things that we should not do because of the flesh. And this is the battle that exists in the Christian life and one that we must fight and one that we must overcome. And we see it here manifested in these passages. And Jesus is teaching us that we cannot have this aversion to the cross of Christ, to sufferings, right? Many people want an easy Christianity. They want a Christianity of prosperity. And this is essentially what Peter is rebuking Christ for, right? Don't speak of death. Don't speak of your cross, Right? These things will never happen. But not only must Jesus go to the cross, who else must go to the cross? All of us must. Right? This is the Christian life, and without it, there is no salvation. If Christ doesn't go, then there would be no salvation for any of us. And then if we do not go, we prove that we're not truly his disciples. So we must take up our cross, and we must follow Christ. And this is what we see here. Why it is essential for the cross of Christ to be in the very center of our theology and in the center of our daily living, right? It must be occupying all of these things. So let's pick up in verse 13. 13 to 20 is this confession of Peter, right? Peter, and when Peter is saying this, he's not saying it merely for himself, but this is what is true, what all the disciples believe. All of them believe, of course, except Judas Iscariot. He may have been saying these things, but he wasn't a true believer in them. But all the other disciples are true believers. And this confession of Peter would have been the common confession of all of them. But Peter is the spokesman. He's the one speaking up and who is saying this. And this is why Jesus is addressing him. So here it says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Here, he's putting this question before his disciples, asking them because they would have uh, a better understanding, a better feel with the people, right? With the people and what is being said amongst the crowds, amongst the people, uh, because Jesus is the one who's up front. He's the one that's typically doing the teaching. He is the one that everyone wants to, to see and to touch and to hear. But the disciples are interacting and they would have a feel or an understanding of what is commonly believed among the people? What are the people out there? We know that there were great crowds of people coming and to hear Christ. We've read about the 5,000 
where he did the miracle. And then we read last time about the 4,000 that he did this miracle. So there are large crowds coming to hear Christ. And so he's asking them, what are they saying about me, right? What are the crowds? What is their assessment of the son of man? Now, when he says son of man, this is Jesus's preferred title for himself. More often than not, he refers to himself as the son of man. And this is an Old Testament title for the Messiah, right? For the Messiah. Now, it can be used sometimes in the Old Testament referring to a man, such as Ezekiel. Ezekiel was called by God. He would call him son of man, son of man. Well, in that context, it's obvious that Ezekiel is not divine. Ezekiel is a mere man, and he's addressing him in that way. But there are other passages where son of man is used, and it's obvious that the person it's being applied to is not merely a man, not simply a man, but is both God and man. And this is why Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, to emphasize his humanity, but not to take away from his divinity. And this was a common understanding that the son of man, right? The son of man was both divine and human, right? Fully God and fully man in the one person. And so this title in the Old Testament, you might see it from time to time. Actually, pretty soon we'll be seeing it in Hebrews chapter 2. Because Psalm 8 uses the phrase son of man in reference to Christ. And if we see it in the context is a messianic context, then we should interpret it in that way, that it is referring not to a mere man, but it is referring to the Messiah or the Christ, right? Which the Bible uses different titles, different ways of describing this one position or this one uh, Messiah, the Christ, the root or the stem of David. There are many different ways the Old Testament describes the coming promised Messiah. Let's see first Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We'll see that this title is used here. 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Here, this is like probably the most familiar passage where this title, Son of Man, is found. Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14. And here, Daniel sees this vision of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days referring to the Father. The Son of Man coming to the Father, and then the Father giving to him an everlasting kingdom and giving him dominion over all things, which is true only of Christ. This cannot be referring to a mere man or to a mere king, right? Only to a divinity king. It has to be more than that. This person is coming before the ancient of days. He is equal with him in terms of his divinity, but he's called the son of man because he's also fully man, fully God and fully man in the one person. Also, Psalm 80. Psalm 80 
Psalm 80, verse 17. Psalm 80, 17 says, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. There, the son of man is the man of God's right hand. Well, who now is sitting at the right hand of God? Jesus Christ, right? He's the one crowned with glory and honor. He has made him strong for himself. God the Father made Christ strong for himself to accomplish his holy will. So there, son of man used again. And then one other, we referred to it earlier, Psalm 8, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 and verse 3 it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him the ruler over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So there, the son of man, he uses this title here. And we know from Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, when the apostle quotes this passage in Hebrews 2, he's applying it to Christ. He says explicitly that this is referring to Jesus Christ. He is the son of man. And that's what Jesus is asking them, right? Who do people say that the Son of Man is referring to himself? Then verse 14, they say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Here, these are the common or popular ideas that are going around among the people concerning Jesus, who he is. Some say John the Baptist, we know from our previous study that this is what was circulating with Herod and those that he was influencing or those, and there may have been others that were adopting this position. Herod believed that Jesus was John raised from the dead, that John was, uh, had come back from the dead and Jesus was him, okay? So that's what Herod believed. Others believe he is Elijah, Elijah. Elijah that is going to come as the predecessor to the Christ, from Malachi chapter 4, that it was commonly uh, believed that before the Messiah comes, that Elijah must come first. Even the disciples asked Jesus, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus says he must come first, and he already has come. And who was Elijah? John, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was Elijah, but they rejected that. So some people are saying that he is Elijah. He is the forerunner, the promised re, uh, forerunner of the Christ who would be like Elijah. Then others say that he is Jeremiah or some other prophet. Jeremiah being one of the greatest of the writing prophets because of the greatness of his ministry, the depth and the breadth of his writing. So he was considered one of the greatest prophets. So Jeremiah or someone like Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. So these are the things that people are saying. And certainly if this was being applied to any mere man, any mere mortal like you or me, these would be very high commendations. 
this would be a very high opinion to have of someone. If someone said that, oh, you remind me of Jeremiah the prophet, or you remind me of John the Baptist, or your ministry is like that of Elijah's, we would take that to be a, a real compliment, some, something that is a real commendation of the person and what they are doing. However, in terms of Jesus, all of these titles or all of these opinions fall far short of the true reality. Because as great as John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah, or the other prophets were, none of them were the Son of God. None of them were fully divine. They were not God in human flesh. So any of these uh, ascriptions given to, to Jesus fall far short because they are, these are mere men. They are not the Son of God. And if our confession of Christ does not include his divinity, then it is subpar. It doesn't cut the mustard. It's not good enough, right? It falls far short of the true reality. And then that's why Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? He wants to know, right? Not that their opinion of him matters in terms of who he is, but he wants to know what is your mind? What is your faith like, right? What do you believe concerning me, my person? Who am I, right? What do you believe concerning me? Who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, this is a sufficient confession. This is a true confession. You are the Christ, the Christ, meaning the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 3 and all throughout the Old Testament, all of the prophets prophesied of the coming Messiah. Christ. And it was commonly believed, even amongst the unbelieving Jews, that the Old Testament scriptures predicted the coming Messiah or the coming Christ. They all were expecting the Christ to come into the world. And here, Peter believes and the others believe that in this person of Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ. He is the Christ who is coming into the world. A couple of passages. First, Psalm 2, 2. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 2. Psalm 2. We'll start reading in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, from the New Testament, the apostles, when they are interpreting Psalm 2, who are they applying it to? They're applying it to Christ. When it says against the Lord and against his anointed, that term anointed would be against his Christ or against his Messiah, his anointed one. They are taking their stand against God the Father and against his Christ. Because the purpose of the Father is to give his Son, Christ, an eternal kingdom. To give him dominion over all the world. And the kings of the earth don't like this because what do they want? They want to rule the world and they don't want Christ ruling the world over them. They want authority. They want all things in subjection to them. But God wants everything in subjection to Christ. And that's why they are railing in an uproar against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Christ. Also, 
First Samuel, First Samuel chapter two. First Samuel two, verse ten. says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Here, the reason this is an important passage is because, one, this is all being said uh, right at the conclusion of the time of the judges. When the Bible that they have, the scriptures that have been delivered to them are the first five books of the Bible, Joshua, and maybe Judges. But hardly anything else has been written. Nothing else has been written because everything else comes after this time. And this is a commoner, a common woman. And what does she believe and know and understand already? Also, this is before Israel has a king. And yet, what is she talking about? She's talking about the future king of Israel. Well, who is she referring to? Who is she talking about? Well, it's that the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. His anointed one is his Messiah, his Christ, who is his king as well. This is the one that Hannah is referring to when she's giving this song of praise to God. Now, to see that this was indeed the expectation in the New Testament, John chapter 1, 19 to 23. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now again, all of this that is being said, though it's recorded in the New Testament, the New Testament has not been written at this point. Right, when all these things are being recorded, none of the New Testament books exist. So they have this belief and expectation from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament taught these things. John 1, 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So there, when he says, I am not the Christ, they don't say, well, Christ, what are you talking about? We've never even heard of the Christ. What, what, what is this new concept? This is new and novel. What are you talking about, John? This Christ. No, they're asking him, who are you? And they're even asking him, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the Christ that's coming into the world? And he's saying, no, I am not the Christ. Then they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give it an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So here he is the forerunner of the Christ, preparing the way for the Lord, the Lord, meaning they knew and understood that the Lord would come to earth and that he would dwell among men in human form, God in human flesh. And this is who John is. While we're in chapter one, also go over to verse uh, 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked 
at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed him. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So here you have these two incidents, both with Peter and Andrew, and then Philip and Nathanael. When uh, Peter is... Uh, when Andrew goes to Peter and tells him, he says, we found the Messiah. Well, if you find him, doesn't that mean that you were looking for him? Don't you have to know what you're looking for if you're going to find him? So he obviously knows that the Messiah is coming into the world. They just don't know who he is, the person, the exact person. That's why John the Baptist is telling them, that's the man over there, that one. That is the Christ. And then they're following him. Then he goes and gets his brother and says, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And then also with Nathaniel and Philip, he says to him, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he knows that he's the son of God, but he also knows he's the king of Israel. And as the king of Israel, he would be of the house of David the house of David, which he was. So here, they are not surprised that somebody is teaching them about an anointed one or a Christ or a Messiah that's coming into the world. They are expecting it. And that's why he even says, the one that Moses and all of the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. They all wrote about the coming Messiah. And now we have come to know and understand that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah. He is here and we believe those things. Also, while we're in John, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, 25 to 26. Again, this to prove that the expectation, the belief that the Messiah was coming into the world was commonly held at this time. Even amongst unbelievers, even amongst Samaritans. John chapter 4, 25. It says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, to her I who speak to you am he. Then also verse 29. 
She says, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Then also verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So there, she knows about the Christ who's coming into the world, and she also expects the people of the town. They know about the Christ, and she's trying to whet their appetite. Could this be the Christ? He told me everything about myself. Come and see him yourself and investigate for, your, for yourself and see whether this is true. And then at the end of it, they say to her, we believe not only because of what you told us, but we ourselves have seen and we know he is the savior of the world. So there, all of them believe and expect the Christ to be coming into the world. Then one last passage, Matthew 26 and verse 63. 26:63 says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there, they are asking him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? So they believe that the Christ is coming and that he is the Son of God. Now, they don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is that Christ, but they do believe those things. And then notice he also says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. That's like we read earlier from Psalm 80 and then coming with the clouds of heaven. He uses the title Son of Man, and they know that he's referring to the divine Son of Man, and that, that's what he's taking for himself. He is claiming divinity, and that's why they accuse him of blasphemy, because they don't believe that he is God in human flesh. Okay, so Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And then the second part, the Son of the living God, the Son of the living God that he has a divine nature that is one with the Father. He is not a lesser de- de- a deity. God the Father is not a capital G, and then Jesus is a lowercase g, but he is of the same nature, the same essence, the exact imprint of the Father. No one has ever seen God the Father. He is the invisible God, but we come to know him. We see God the Father through Christ. And when we see Christ, who do we see? We see the Father. To know Christ, to know the Son, is to know the Father. This is like John 14, when the disciples ask him, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And he says, have I been with you so long that you don't know that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. You don't need to see the Father if you see the Son, because the Son is the exact imprint, the representation of the Father. He reveals him to us. So he has this divine nature with the Father, and that is what Peter and the others are confessing. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. This is who you are. Not the Son of a false God, not the Son of a dead God, but the Son of the true, the only, the living God. And you are one with 
the Father. John chapter 6. John 6, 61. And this is important because there are even some uh, scholars out there who will say that the disciples, and no one in the New Testament, knew and understood all of these concepts about Christ, that he would be divine, that he would have a human and a divine nature. They didn't know that he was going to die on the cross. They didn't know about the resurrection. There are people who claim to be scholars who say that none of these things are taught in the Old Testament, that these things weren't understood and weren't incorporated into the faith until after the resurrection of Christ. But all the things that we're reading take place before the resurrection of Christ. But they already all believe this, right? They all believe these things even beforehand, even from the Old Testament. John 6, 66 says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So there, Peter is confessing, you are the Holy One of God. Well, how can he be the Holy One of God unless he is God in human flesh? Right, the Holy One of God. This is what Peter is confessing concerning Christ. Also, chapter 11, John 11, 21 to 27. John eleven twenty one, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So there, Martha, another commoner, right? She's not a scholar. She's not highly educated and trained in, this, in these ways. She's a commoner who has access to the Bible, just like we do. We are common people. We have the Bible. We're studying the Bible. Well, this is what she would have been like who has access to the Old Testament scriptures. And yet, what does she believe about Christ? She says that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So she believes the same thing that Peter believes, which is what all true believers believe, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We must believe and confess these things as well. Then verse 17 Where does this understanding come from? Does it come from man? Is Peter, are the other disciples, are they wiser than other men? Do they have more sophistication than others? Are they able to figure things out and other people are not? Is it because they use their free will and other people did not use their free will? Where does this understanding and this knowledge, this true confession of Christ, where does it come from? Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. 
here, he first points out that you are blessed. You are blessed, blessed by God. God blessing him, giving this as a gift. God has conferred this blessing upon you, right? He's given it to you. So though Peter is the one making the confession, he's saying this, and it's good and right for him to do so, Jesus is sure to put the focus where it rightly belongs. And what do you have that you have not received? Right. Everything that we receive comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Every good thing comes from God. Well, is this a good confession of faith? Yes, so where did it come from? It had to come from God. It came down from God the Father, and that's what Jesus emphasizes to Peter and the others. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. right? You did not come to this understanding because you had another human being, another man, come and who's really good at explaining things. He's very funny. He tells great stories. He's, he's really winsome and charming. And because of all of his wit and humor and his ability, he's a wordsmith. He's able to use words. And because of that, you were convinced of these things because of the greatness of the speaker, the greatness of the preacher, of the teacher. No, that's not where it came from. Even though in their case, who is their primary preacher and teacher? Jesus Christ. But even with Jesus as your primary preacher and teacher, you cannot come to these understandings apart from God the Father revealing these things to you. God must open the eyes. So it did not come from flesh and blood, from any other men or even from your own flesh and blood, not from your own wisdom, not from your own intellect, not because you have a high IQ, or because you have more wisdom than other men and you're able to figure it out. No, it didn't come from any of those sources. It did not come from any man, but rather it came from God. God the Father, he revealed it to you. The Father who is in heaven has granted you to know these things. He's given it to you. Now, we have to point out, does everyone believe this at this time? Well, we read many passages earlier, especially the one from Matthew 26, 63. Did the chief priests and scribes believe this? Did the Sanhedrin and the council believe this? Did the majority of the Jews believe this? So why did Peter believe it and they didn't? They all heard the same preaching. The father revealed it to Peter, but he did not reveal it to them. Right? right? He did not give it to them. To you has been granted, right, the keys to the kingdom, the knowledge of the kingdom. But to others, it's in parables so that they cannot understand. He's already taught that. He reveals to one and he conceals it from another. If he reveals it to Peter, as he has, can Peter boast and say that I'm smarter than everyone else? No, because it all came from God. Can the others who it's not revealed to, can they complain and say this isn't fair or right? No, God can do whatever he wants. He can have mercy on whomever he wills, and he can harden whomever he wills. He can do whatever he pleases with his own. Doesn't the potter have rights over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use, according to Romans 9? Yes, he can do whatever he pleases. So if God wants to reveal it to a few and conceal it from the majority, then God can do that, and he's done no one any wrong. Flesh and blood did not reveal it, but the Father in heaven. Now, for us, we have to understand this as well. Right? This is given to us to promote humility. Humility and gratefulness to God. 
Who should we thank and praise for our salvation? Only God, not us. It is not because of our will. It's not because of our wisdom, our intellect, that we have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is only because God the Father has revealed it to us. John 1, 12 and 13. John 1, verse 12. It says there, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So yes, they did receive him, but how did they receive him? How were they given the ability to receive him? They were born of God. They had a new birth, regeneration, spiritual birth that came about not according to their blood, not according to the will of the flesh, not according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. This is how they received him. That's the same as here in our passage in Matthew chapter 16. Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 verse 17. Luke 10, 17 says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Only those that the Son wills to reveal the Father, they will come to know the Father. And knowing the Father and knowing the Son, he's talking about what? Salvation, right? He's talking about salvation. He has to be talking about salvation. And he even says that the Father has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. God hid it from them. And God revealed it to the infants. And this is well-pleasing in God's sight. And also, Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. So this is another uh, common false belief amongst so-called scholars that no one believed in the Trinity until 300 AD. But here, doesn't Jesus in this one verse right here, we see all persons of the Trinity, the Son rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, praising the Father. Right there. Father, Son, Spirit. Together in perfect harmony, rejoicing that God has revealed it to the infants, and that he has hidden it from the wise and understanding. They're rejoicing in the doctrine of election, is what they're rejoicing in. So should we rejoice in the doctrine of election? Of course. of course we should, right? We cannot have disdain for the true doctrines of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. 
1 Corinthians 12, 3. First Corinthians 12, 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can make a true confession. When he says no one can say Jesus is Lord, well, he doesn't mean just say it audibly. He means it in, from the heart. A true confession of that Jesus is Lord. That's flowing from a heart that believes in him that has believed in the heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, no one can do that except by the Holy Spirit. That's John chapter 3. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, then verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here, Jesus is using a play on words. A play on words in order to emphasize and to show uh, how it is that his church is going to be built upon. Or rather, what it is that the church is going to be built upon. He says, I say that you are Peter. Peter's the one who spoke. He's the one that made the confession. And his name is Peter. And the name Peter means rock, right? This is what it means literally. It means rock. So he's saying, you are Peter. And then upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, what does he mean by rock? Who is the rock that the church is going to be built upon? Does he literally mean that Peter is the pillar, the foundation of the church, in and of himself, in and of his person. We point this out because that's what Roman Catholics teach. This is the passage Roman Catholics use for the Pope. This is their proof text for the basis for having the Pope. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. So if you ask a Roman Catholic, where do you get the Pope from the Bible? This is the passage that they will go to. And they believe that at this point, Jesus has made Peter the first pope. And then after that, th there's a succession of popes that come from Peter. It passes from Peter to the next, to the next, to the next. And that the pope is himself the rock upon which the church is built. And the pope has authority over the church and over the people in the church to grant salvation to one and to take it from another. The Pope has the authority to absolve sins. He has the authority to get people out of purgatory. He'll do it actually for money. If you give him money, he'll get you out of, and your loved ones out of purgatory. He can bind you to hell. So they believe that in that person, in the person of Peter, there is an office created of the Pope and that this office is installed in Peter here and then passes on through successive generations into the next Pope. Okay, so that's what the Roman Catholics believe. But is that what Jesus is saying here? No. What is the rock upon which the church is built? Well, the rock is Christ. Christ is the rock. And Peter has just given a good confession of faith in Christ. Yes, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
but not on the men. It's their words. It's the words of the apostles and the prophets. And what is the focus of both the apostles and the prophets? Who are the apostles and prophets teaching us about, telling us to put our faith in? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That He is the one who is the rock upon which the church is built. And this rock is the object of Peter's faith. The object of his faith is the one that it is built upon. And all true believers, all of those that come into the church, the true church, will come and have the same confession. The same confession of faith, the same object of faith, the same source of eternal salvation, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So the true confession of a belief in the person and work of Christ. It is his trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basis of his salvation, the person and work of Christ. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John 20, 30. It says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there, the Apostle John, he writes his letter. He writes this book so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we will have eternal life because he is the only source of eternal life. You must believe in Christ. Also, Ephesians 2, verse 20. This is why the word of God is given to us. Ephesians 2, verse 20. Well, actually, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So there, the Gentiles are not strangers and aliens anymore to the kingdom of God, but now they are fellow citizens. With all of the saints, they're a part of God's household. With Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with David, with all of the Christians of the Old Testament. And their faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Not on the men, because they are men, but rather on their teaching, their doctrines. And what is the central doctrine, the central teaching of all of the prophets and all of the apostles? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Every word of scripture has some reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ or an implication of it or uh, a result of it. Everything has relationship to the person and work of Christ. This is why Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that testify of me. All of the scriptures testify in one way or another to Christ, to Christ. And he is the cornerstone. He is the rock upon which the church is built. 
and then the apostles and the prophets in that they are the ones that were given the task by God, led by the Holy Spirit, to write the word of God by which we come to the knowledge of the truth, to the knowledge of the true Christ and the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins in him and in him alone. This is where it is found, not in the person of Peter. Peter is in his person is not the rock upon which the church is built, but rather the object of Peter's faith. That is the rock upon which the church is built and the object that he wrote about in the books that he wrote, which was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, in this passage here, is Peter greater than the other apostles? Is there a distinction in terms of, yes, we can say that Peter, James, and John, they were given certain privileges that the other apostles were not given. We'll see that next week on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were taken up. We also know there was another occasion where the girl that had died and she was raised, that he took Peter, James, and John with them in there. But does the Bible ever say that he, is, he has a higher rank as an apostle than anyone else? Are the words written by Peter in First and Second Peter, are they greater than the words written by John? Are they greater than the words written by the Apostle Paul or by James? So where does the Bible teach that he is the greatest of the apostles? Right In terms of Jesus giving him a peculiar title or a peculiar office over and above the other apostles. So that's nowhere to be taught in Scripture. He's not chief of the apostles. He did not become, this is the other thing they believe, the Catholics, that he became the first bishop of the church at Rome, of the church in Rome. So he became the first bishop of Rome, and then the next bishop of Rome after Peter became the second pope, and then the one after him, the third pope, and then on and on and on till we get to the demon pope that we have today, who is a communist, right? This guy's completely worthless, and he cusses. Have y'all seen that? He, he swears. He's a, a cursor. He's so profane in so many ways. So this doctrine, this belief in the Pope, the Holy Roman See, whatever they want to call him, there's nothing holy about him. Right? We shouldn't follow him, look up to him, revere him in any way. Whether it's the commie Pope that we have today or what other con artist Pope that we had in years past. They're all rubbish and none of them are any good. Okay, uh, Matthew 18, verse 1. Matthew chapter 18 Notice here, he says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, if Peter is the Pope, then wouldn't we have to say Peter is greatest? He's greater than any other man. He has the ability to forgive sins. He has authority over the entire church. He's greater than anyone. But is that what Jesus says? Does Jesus say Peter is? Peter is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. No, he takes a child and puts him in their midst and says you have to be humble, right? You have to be humble like a child uh, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So there is no basis then for the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church for the Pope. And therefore, that church is not a true church, but it is a false church, a false church that will lead people to hell, and we should not uh, attend that church. Okay, also here, he says in verse 18, 
upon this rock, I will build my church, my church. Well, what does he mean by church here? He doesn't mean all the visible church, but he means the true church, the true church, which consists of all true believers from the Old Testament and all true believers until the end of time. Everyone who is a true believer in Christ is a part of the church and is built upon this foundation and has salvation through Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. 1 Timothy 3.15. 1 Timothy 3, in verse 15, it says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So there, he calls the church the household of God, household of God, which are the children of God, all the true children of God, and the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The true church supports the truth, doesn't undermine it, doesn't contradict it. So any church that claims to be a church but does not support and uphold the truth is not a true church, but it is a false church and they are not a part of the household of God. But here, in our passage in Matthew 16, he's talking about the true church, all true believers. Also, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So there he calls the church, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's the church he's talking about in Matthew 16. The true church of God that will be saved by the blood of Christ. Also, he says in verse 18, that the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. The gates of Hades will not overpower those who are true believers, but all of the elect of God will overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil and all of them will enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus will not lose one of his sheep, but rather they will overcome the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades will never overpower the true church of God. Now, the gates of Hades will overpower false churches because they are in league together. They're all part of the same cabal. But the true believer, the true church, will overcome them because their faith is built upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. And they build it upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They're testing everything by scripture. And in the end, they will triumph over the devil. They will triumph over the, the Satan, the world, and the flesh. And what is the victory? What is it that gives them the victory to overcome these things? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. In Revelation chapter 2, Verses 10 and 11, 
Revelation 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. That's what he means when he says, the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. Even if they put us to death in this life, he will give us a crown of life. And we will overcome them, and we will not be hurt by the second death. The second death. They will all be resurrected to eternal life. Then verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here, when he's giving these keys to the kingdom to Peter and the other apostles, right? he's not saying that he's giving them authority to act unilaterally outside of the will of God. And that whatever they say, whatever enters into their mind or imagination, whatever words they want to say, then that is true and right, and everyone has to believe it, right? If what they say contradicts the word of God, then they don't have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, I say that because it is believed in the Roman Catholic Church that the Pope, who is the vicar of Christ, he is the representative of Christ on earth, and whatever he says is final, right? Is the authoritative uh, interpretation of scripture and no one can contradict it. No one can challenge it. If the Pope says it, then it is true. And this is the passage that they use. He has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So whatever he declares on earth is the word of God, even if what he says contradicts the word of God, such as the one that changed the Lord's prayer recently, yeah. changed the Lord's prayer, took out the phrase, lead us not into temptation. Because Jesus would never lead us into temptation. They, they removed it from the Lord's Prayer. Is that what Jesus means here when he says, I give you the keys to the kingdom? That they have the authority? That Peter has the authority or the other apostles have the authority to change the word of God? To make it up as they go? No, of course not. Of course not. He means it in the sense, not unilaterally, but under the authority of God. Insofar as they are exercising their ministry consistently with the word of God, right? Not contradicting it, not independent of God's authority, but under the authority of God, dependent and submissive to God's will. When they are faithfully preaching and teaching, then they can make declarations concerning the spiritual state of the people. And not only can they do this, but we can as well. The church can as well. Whenever we are preaching and teaching the word of God faithfully and someone believes that, then can we not say that this one is also a child of Abraham? Can we not say that salvation has come to this house? Can we not say the angels of God are rejoicing because this one is a true believer? And if someone rejects the word of God, can we not say that that one is a son of the devil? that that one is an unbeliever, that the judgment of God is upon him because he has refused to believe in the Son of God. Of course we can do that. That's what he means by the keys to the kingdom of heaven, that whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whenever you're preaching the gospel faithfully and someone believes it and you're rejoicing and declaring what is true, what you see in this person, then that is in agreement with what God says in heaven. And if a person rejects 
and you say you're un in your sin, you're under the judgment of God, you bind them in that sin under judgment and condemnation, you're not acting independent of God, you're simply declaring what God says as well, according to his word. To bind in judgment or to loose in salvation. An example of each. First, Acts 13. Acts 13, this is the apostles. doing this, uh, the Apostle Paul doing this with Elimaeus. Acts 13, verse 9. It says, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight way of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Here, isn't Paul binding Elimaeus, the magician, the son of the devil, the enemy of all righteousness? Right? He's making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. It's obvious that this man is not a believer. It's obvious that this man is under the judgment of God, and that's what he says to him. He binds him under the judgment of God because of his unbelief and his resisting of the word of God. He's not doing that independent of God. He's doing it based upon the word of God, based upon what he's seeing manifested in this man, according to the will of God. Also, then, Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, verse 28. Acts 16, 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. There, he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Is he saying that on his own authority? No, that's what the Bible teaches. He's saying it under the authority of Christ. But is it true that if he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be saved in his household? Yes, they will be loosed from their sins. And this is what they do. And then they're baptized into the church. Also, one last point to make in regards to this. If we go to Act, uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 18, this authority to bind and loose is not exclusive to Peter. It's not exclusive to Peter as the Roman Catholics take it. In Matthew 18, he's speaking to all the apostles and also this would be applied to us as well. This is the basis for church discipline through the ages. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private if he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
And again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So there, here he's talking about binding and loosing again. And in this case of church discipline, if the person doesn't repent, then they have the authority, the church, to bind this man in his sin. To say you're under the judgment of God. To send him out and treat him as a tax collector and a Gentile. But if he repents of his sin, to say that your sins have been forgiven. And to welcome him and restore him into the fellowship of the church. And there, that same authority is given. Not, it's not Peter that he's talking to here. He's talking to all of them. Well, that's the same as over here as well. So it's not exclusive to Peter as the Roman Catholics want to make it. Okay, well, we're going to stop there for tonight. And uh, then we'll pick back up next week in verse 21. Now, I know we spent a lot of time on that, but there's a lot to talk in that. There's a lot of content in that passage. So it's a very important passage. And also it is, I know some of you had a puzzled look on your face when I was saying that this is the passage the Roman Catholics use for the proof of the existence of the Pope. Well, it's good that you had a puzzled look because you should be going, what? That, that's insanity. Where are they getting that from? And exactly, where are they getting it from? They're getting it from their own mind. They're pulling it out of thin air. Also, there's no evidence that Peter was ever the first bishop of Rome right. either. So all this is just a fairy tale and a fantasy that they make up. It's not scripturally true nor factually true. And yet they hold to it because they want to believe whatever they want to believe. And then they follow this man blindly who does not have any authority at all. And this is why the reformers refer to the Roman Catholic Church as uh, the Antichrist. So the, the Pope, they referred to him as the Antichrist. And certainly he is an Antichrist in the way that he behaves. He is contrary to the truth and to Christ and is actually a deceitful workman of Satan. Yet the Roman Catholic Church remains today the largest church in the world and it's false so why would we be surprised that that is the case we shouldn't be because many false prophets have gone out into the world we have to test the spirits to see if they are from god test the spirits to see if they are from god and test everything according to the word of god